The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching texts come from Proverbs 19.20 and 27.6. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My batteries died mid past the piece, so I didn't get to greet any of you guys. I'm sorry. Uh, if you got a Bible, go to the Proverbs. That's where we're going to be hanging out tonight. Uh, go to the book of Proverbs. We are continuing. This is week, gosh, five of our series on the emotionally healthy church, asking what it is that our discipleship to Jesus, uh, how it matters for our emotional health and uh, our emotional maturity and how we move forward in all of those things because of Jesus. I'm going to be honest with you guys before we get to the book of Proverbs, we're looking at a ton of different Proverbs tonight, that uh, I had a plan for the past really couple of months since we decided to do this series of what I was going to preach tonight in light of this topic that I'm about to talk about. And it's not often in, but occasionally these things get rewritten like it did today at 10 a.m. Uh, and so really for the past two weeks, our teaching team has continued to say, Tim, you need to do not do this passage. You need to do the Proverbs instead. And I was like, no, guys, this passage. And they were like, nope, do the Proverbs. And I said, okay, I'll think about it. And then this morning I woke up and I said, crap, I should have done the Proverbs. And so here we are, and we're going to look at the Proverbs, and I say all that to say a few things. Number one is that if you like it, you can give all the credit to our teaching team and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't like what I'm about to say or find it not helpful, then I'll just take all the blame. That's fine. I'm, I'm secure in Christ. Second, I'm really glad, at least today, that we meet at 5 p.m. <laughs> it's good for me, because I've gotten to do that all day. And then third, the good news for us as a church is that it's never dependent on what God will do based on my words or the eloquence of my speech or how well-prepared this is. It's always based on the power of Christ through the word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some Proverbs. Let me pray, and then I think it'll make sense. I'm I'm hopeful that the Lord's going to do what he always does. God, thank you so much for you, for Christ, for the Holy Spirit. God, thank you that in your kindness and your providence, God, you have set before us uh, your word. What what an incredible treasure and gift and honor it is, God, that you don't hide yourself from us, and yet you reveal yourself to, to sinners, to those who are broken, to those who are struggling, to those who are hurt, to those who are downtrodden, to those who are rebellious and your enemy. God, you saw us in the midst of all of that, and yet you sent your son Jesus to live and to die, to rise again. Lord, as we think about emotional health, as we think about what it looks like to be mature followers of you and in this area of our lives, God, we're just aware of our inabilities to have uh, really any control over our emotional responses, our inability to, to flourish in relationship, our inability to live as you call us to live, God. And so we're just desperately in need of you. Desperately in need of your spirit. God, would you help me say what is true, what is helpful, what is honorable to you and to this church family? God, would you let anything that is not of you pass away, and will you help us only remember what it is that you have for us that is true and good and lasting? I need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My junior year of college uh, was nothing short of a train wreck. 
I've talked about this some before, but I spent most of my junior year of college uh, searching for anything and anyone that I thought was going to give me life or meaning or validation or joy. And so for me, a lot of what that looked like as a 21-year-old college student was going to the bars four or five nights a week, was hopping from one girl to another girl to another girl to another girl, all the while leading a small group community similar to how we do community groups here at Citizens. And I would have called it a hidden double life, except it wasn't. It was a pretty bold double life, so much so that I was leading this group, and we would meet on Thursday nights. And if it wasn't done in time, I, as the group leader, would actually get up and leave early so I could go downtown and meet my friends at the bar. Now, here's the thing. If you would have asked me as a junior in college, 21-year-old Tim, hey, man, how are you doing? Like, how are you doing with God? How are you doing with your soul? How are you doing with following Jesus? I would have said, I think I'm doing pretty well. Like, I think that I've got a grasp on the spiritual disciplines. I think that I'm, you know, pretty healthy emotionally. I think that I'm, you know, trying to follow God. I think that I've got everything under control. I think I'm full of joy. Like, I think I'm doing pretty well. And, I, and after a few months or really a year of this, these guys that I've, I've come to know really well, that many of them, we were in each other's weddings, were just dear friends of mine, started to kind of get fed up with me. One guy in particular, he'll remain nameless, we're still friends to this day, he's not a part of our church, he uh, is the most gentle and kind-hearted and just gracious human that you'll maybe ever meet in your entire life. And one day he had just had enough. So we're sitting in community group, and I'm sharing, and I'm talking about something, I think it was along the lines of like, hey guys, uh, I know that we talked about me maybe not dating for a little while, and finding contentment in Christ, but like I met this girl, and she's not really about Jesus at all, but like I think it's going to be a really good thing this time, don't worry about it. And I kid you not, I wish this was a joke, the next thing that happened was... He slapped me across my face. I wish I was kidding. Well, here we are in the middle of group, and I'm sharing, hey guys, I think this and this, I think it's going to be a good thing, and out of nowhere, and he was a pitcher in high school, and he just reared back, he's left-handed, he just reared back, and just, I mean, right across the face. The, one of the kindest, most gentlest men that I know was so fed up with my stupidity and my sin that he thought, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to slap him. Now, I am not advocating for any of that in any of our Citizens Church community groups, okay? Don't think, I'm not going to sign up for one of those, that sounds weird, okay? Zero percent slapping happening at Citizens Church. If someone slaps you in group, you call me immediately, and I'll have a chat and some words. That's not what I'm advocating for, but here is what, I kid you not, what the Holy Spirit did through that moment, not immediately, but a few weeks later when I got to think about it and process it. Here's what the Holy Spirit showed me, two things. Number one, no one is better at lying to me than me. No one is better at lying to me than me. And guess what? The same is true for you. No one is better at lying to you than you. What happens is when we live with this kind of mixture of sin and emotional unhealth is we begin to live in this world that I call the state of unreality where we just kind of think that things are either better or worse than they actually are, or we are better or worse than we actually are. This kind of state where we're just not functioning in light of what is actually true about our hearts and about the world and about our lives. And Jeremiah actually tells us to expect this, right? This is Jeremiah uh, 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
the heart, this kind of operating system of our lives, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is deceitful above all things. What does that mean? It means we, because of sin, always think we're right. Yet we live in a world of unreality. Because of sin, because of our own emotional unhealth, we think that the view of our lives or our world is correct when often it's just not. But here's the second thing that I learned, is that one of the key tools God uses to shape us as spiritually and emotionally healthy people and into spiritual and emotional maturity is the gift of God's people. One of the key things God uses to shape us into the image of Christ is other people who love Jesus and love us. Now, were his means pretty bad there? Yes, my friend should not have slapped me. It's not what I'm saying, but he loved me desperately and his continual love for me on an ongoing basis over years of me just being an idiot and him continuing to show up for me was one of the most powerful tools God used in my life to continue to shape me more and more towards Christ. We need other people. We need other people. If we're going to move forward into emotional maturity, that is feeling the right emotion at the right time, for the right duration, the right amount, for the right reason, namely love, if we're going to move into being those types of people, then it is going to take other people. Or to say it another way, emotional health, like all of our discipleship to Jesus, is a community project. It's an us thing. It's a we thing. All of the Christian life, including moving towards emotional health, is a community project. We need some people who are going to step into our world of unreality and bring some truth and bring some reality and bring some actuality. Hey, this is off. This is wrong. This is right. This is not good. This is good. God is faithful. Let's remember these things that are true together. And so that leads us to our fourth movement that I want to talk about today, and that is this. We must go out to go forward. We must go out to go forward. We must take our emotions outward into the context of a loving, committed, Jesus-centered community in order to move forward into emotional health. You need other people. To put it simply, you need other people. you got to take your emotional life, you got to walk with other people, take it out to them to move forward into emotional health. And there's so many examples of this in the scripture. I was just thinking about a few of them. Uh, The first is Jesus in the garden. So if you remember that passage that we looked at in week one where Jesus is facing the crucifixion and he's in the garden, and he, he's just, his soul is so sorrowful. And because he's Jesus, he's living in reality. What he's about to face is terrible and excruciating. But what he does is not just pray to the Father. He goes to Peter, James, and John, right? And he says to these kind of three closest friends of his, hey, my soul is in tr- like sorrow, even to the point of death. And then he says, will you stay here and what? Watch with me. I need you in this moment. Think about King David and all of the turmoil that he went to before he got coronated as king, right? Saul just continually trying to take him out and take him out and take him out. And he has this faithful friend in Jonathan who just keeps showing up and they weep together and they pray together. And Jonathan keeps reminding him, no, God has called you to be king and I'm in this with you. Think about the Apostle Paul at the end of his ministry, 2 Timothy 4, right? He's in prison for preaching the gospel, and he writes this letter to Timothy, his disciple in the faith, and he says, hey, I need some things. I need my books, I need my coat because I'm cold, and I need you to come visit me and bring John Mark, because John Mark is a deep encouragement to me. And I love that. Here's one of the the greatest spreaders of the gospel to ever live, wrote the majority of the New Testament. He's on his deathbed facing death for the preaching the gospel, and he says, I need this guy. Because this guy encourages me. This is a community 
project. We need folks in the ups and downs, the brokenness and the suffering, the sin and the emotional turmoil. So if you would turn with me to the book of Proverbs, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. So our, our typical practice here at Citizens Church is to kind of pick a chunk of scripture each Sunday and to preach kind of through a big chunk of text. So we kind of break it down and talk about how it points to Jesus, how it applies to our lives. Uh, but today, I want to do things a little differently because Proverbs is a little different of a book. You can't really pick a chunk of Proverbs and teach it. So if you ever read the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs is a genre of scripture called wisdom literature. So just to kind of catch us all up, the Bible is one big book, yes, but it's also a collection of 66 smaller books. And those 66 smaller books are different genres. So you have things like uh, historical narrative, right? So think Genesis or Matthew or Acts. There are accounts of things that actually took place in history. There are uh, letters in the Bible, often called epistles, right? Books like Romans or First and Second Thessalonians or Galatians or Ephesians. There are poems and songs in the book of Psalms and Song of Solomon. There's prophecy pointing forward to what is going to happen like the book of Isaiah. And, and one of those genres is the genre of wisdom literature. What wisdom literature is, is there given by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit to show us how life with God is supposed to work. That's the point of wisdom literature. It's to show us, hey, this is what flourishing with God in the day-to-day -day uncertainty of life actually looks like. And part of that wisdom that Proverbs has for us is all about relationships. And there's several passages in particular that I think speak directly to this idea of going out to going forward. And so I want to look at just a handful of Proverbs and see what it is we might learn from them and talk about different points for what it looks like to go out to go forward. And I want to do it kind of all under the category, and this comes from a, a guy named Tim Keller and New York City, who talks about this idea of deputizing people in our lives. So what he means by that is he says, okay, as a follower of Jesus, if you want to grow, if you want to move forward, if you want to be sanctified or be spiritually mature, you got to get some people around you who you're going to actually say, hey, I need you to help me look more like Christ over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Deputizing people in our lives, them stepping in for us and we stepping in for them. And so I just got some points, got some practical things of what it looks like to bring community into this journey of emotional health that we're going on. We're going to hit them one at a time. I'll say some things. We'll see what happens. Number one. How's that for, like, you know, certainty, right? We, uh, we were on leadership retreat this past weekend uh, with our ministry team, and we're talking about leadership values. And uh, one of them that we're trying to, trying to kind of push forward into our church is embrace ambiguity. And so this is an opportunity for us as a church to embrace ambiguity with this sermon. Number one, cultivate Christ-centered relationships. Step number one to going out, bringing community in to move forward into emotional health is this. Cultivate Christ-centered relationships. Cultivate Christ-centered relationships. Proverbs 11, verse 14. All these will be on the screen, so you can get them down. Proverbs 11, 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Number one, cultivate Christ-centered relationships. Let's just start with the obvious. You need other people. I love Proverbs 11. Right? When you've got other people speaking into your life, when you have an abundance of counselors, an abundance of people saying, hey, this is what's true about God, this is what's true about your life, this is what's off in your life, when you have an abundance of counselors, there's safety, there's guardrails, there's just a way in which you're going to be okay, but when you pull out of that, when you isolate, when you don't get around other people, then danger is coming. This is a wisdom lesson from the Proverbs, because this is what we know to be true, right? You were not meant to live life alone. 
You're not meant to live life alone. This is one of the most simple and basic ideas of the Christian faith. This goes all the way back to the fabric of creation, right? God creates Adam. He shows up, Genesis 2, 18, and what does he say? It is not good for man to be what? Alone. And so what does he do? He gives him woman. He gives him Eve. He says, look, community, other people. Here's Adam dwelling in perfect relationship with God, and God still says, no, there's more that should be happening in order for it to be my ideal, very good creation. I'm going to create someone else. You were not made to live life alone. And so if you try to go about life as a Christian on your own, this kind of isolated, me and Jesus, I'm going to kind of do my thing, then you're going against not only the teachings of the scriptures, but the very fabric of your soul in creation. You get that? If you go about life and say, it's just me and Jesus, I don't need anybody else, you're going against the very design God has purposed you for, which is to live life with other people. You need interpersonal, committed to Jesus and to each other relationships in order to both make it as a follower of Jesus and to mature as a follower of Jesus. Because your ability and my ability to deceive ourselves is just too great. So a few years ago, this was pretty actually early on in marriage, Lindsay and I, uh, we're living in Louisville at the time, and we, uh, we just love Pizza Hut pizza. I don't care if you don't. I do. And it's delicious. They changed their recipe a few years ago. It's awesome. And so we were going to pick up Pizza Hut pizza because we were too cheap to pay for delivery at the time. And so we're going to pick it up, and we're sitting at this stoplight, and I'm paying zero attention, right? Like, I, I'm zero attention to what's going on. I'm just convinced in my mind, I'm driving, that Pizza Hut is on our left. And what I don't realize is that it's actually directly across the light from us. And so the light turns green, and we get ready to turn, and Lindsay's like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? It's right there. Go straight. Go straight. And I'm like, no, babe, it's definitely left. And I just start pulling left and I keep going down the road for like a good three miles. And I'm just like, where's the pizza hut? It was here. And she said, I told you, remember when you told me to, to be quiet and it was right in front of us like that. And I was like, oh, and here's the deal. It's a silly example, but so often in our spiritual health, that is the reality of our souls when we live in isolation. All right, so to track with me on this, okay? We can be so convinced living in our unreality that we are heading in a particular direction, namely towards more and more into the image of Christ. And the gift of other people and living in community says, hey, what are you doing? It's not to the left. It's straight. It's not over there. It's straight. So don't go that way. It's straight. What are you doing? And so the gift of other people in interpersonal relationships are those that show up to us and say, hey, you think it's one way. It's not actually that way. And if you're going to exist on your own, you're always going to be convinced you're right and flourishing more with God than chances are you probably actually are. And that's the gift of community. The gift of community to step in and go, no, Pizza Hut is straight across the light. Why are we five miles over here? And you're like, oh yeah, I am living in unreality. I'm five miles over here and Jesus is here. What am I doing? That's the gift of Christ-centered relationships. I love the way that Hebrews talks about it. In verse 12, Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So he says, hey, watch your faith. Verse 13, but encourage one another, exhort one another, push one another towards Jesus every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews says, hey, watch your heart, stay close to Jesus, and one of the greatest tools you have is that you would exhort, encourage, and push one another every single day. I love the way Joseph Hellerman puts it. He has this book, uh, it's called When the Church Was Family. If you're like, I want the DNA of citizens, I want to know what y'all are about, this is like top three on the list of books for us. Joseph Hellerman, When the Church Was a Family. This is what he says. He says, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. The crucible, they're like the key 
to genuine progress in the Christian life. We can't walk this life alone. Number two, that's number one. Number two, seek gospel-fueled humility. Seek gospel-fueled humility. This is Proverbs 12, verse 15, just one chapter over. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. This step is absolutely crucial to going out to go forward. A fool, right? That's what it says. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Humility, gospel-fueled humility, opens up our hearts to the input and the advice and the criticism and the confrontation and the encouragement of others. We just are opening ourselves up to go, hey, maybe I'm not right here, and I don't want to be a fool who's always right in my own ways, and so I'm going to listen. What do you have for me? Uh, John Stott, who's a British theologian, says it this way. He says, pride is your greatest enemy, but humility is your greatest friend. When it comes to walking with Jesus, pride is your greatest enemy, but humility is your greatest friend. Nothing buffers us against the work of God in our lives like pride. Like this self-assuredness, pervading sense that we are just always right. Nothing keeps us from the work of God in our lives through others. Like just always thinking we're the stuff. If we just always are like, I'm right, you're wrong, nothing's going to buffer us more than that pride. And I'm speaking to someone with a personal experience in this. I've got pride issues for days, right? I'm an Enneagram one off the charts, both healthy and unhealthy. And if you don't know what that means, that just means I always think I'm right all the time. You can ask Lindsay. I just always think I'm right all of the time. And so I am fully aware of my battle with pride. And so what happens, this temptation and pull in my heart, and this is just me being honest with you guys for a second. I'm always honest, but this is me being extra honest. Um, I show up to community group, and sometimes if I'm just having a bad day, or I'm not connecting with Jesus, or I'm just feeling off in my soul, I want to step in, and my pride just wants to go crazy. And I want to think things like, well, uh, I, first of all, I'm a pastor. And second of all, like, I'm getting my doctorate in applied theology. And third of all, I'm just generally awesome. And so I don't know what these guys have for me in Engage the Heart that I don't already know. And I'm awesome. And so I'm just kind of going to pull back and sit in my pride and know how awesome I am. And that's me. That's me in my sin a lot of Tuesday nights. And the guys in my group are awesome. (laughs) And so it's ridiculous. But here's the thing. When I come in with that posture to group and I think things like, how could this person speak into my life because I'm above them or different than them or more advanced than them in years? Or how are they going to speak into this or that or this or that or whatever? That person, they can't speak into my life. When When I do that, I buffer myself against the deep work of God God wants to do in my heart through those men in my group. I just buffer it, and I say, no, God, I'm too smart, I'm too wise, I know too much. So what happens is every sin I confess will have an excuse. Every suffering I'm facing will be exactly how I view it, and every unhealthy emotion that I have will be completely valid and reasonable, and nothing can get through this impenetrable wall of pride. So the invitation for us in Proverbs 12, 15 is to have humility, but not just any humility, gospel-fueled humility, right? This is not just like humility, uh, whatever, let's kind of like think of ourselves badly. This is gospel-fueled, man, at the cross of Jesus, nothing I do can make myself right with God and levels the playing field at the cross and all of us are desperate sinners in need of a savior, there, I'll say it this way. There is nothing more humiliating, and I mean that in a positive sense. There's nothing more humiliating, humble producing within us than just looking at the cross of Jesus that says the necessary thing we believe is that we can't in order to be saved. There's nothing more beautiful and humility producing within us. Number three, 
Number three, welcome God-sent and God-word encouragement. Welcome God-sent and God-word encouragement. Y'all doing all right? I'm getting a lot of sleepy. You good? Everybody good? Cool, thanks. Number three, welcome God-sent and God-word encouragement. Proverbs 19, verse 20, this is what it says. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. All right, look at the key there on verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction. The, the word there for listen, it's, it's here, but it's also like receive and welcome and embrace. It's just this idea of like, look for it. And when it gets there, welcome it. And then that word for advice is think counsel. Think like trusted friend, trusted mentor speaking into our lives, right? Welcoming this God assent and God word encouragement. And there can be such a temptation in kind of these emotionally tumultuous seasons of our lives to believe two lies. Lie number one is that God is not good. And lie number two is that we are alone. There's nothing more isolating than suffering. There's nothing more isolating than hurt. This lie that we just all seem to believe in the back of our minds that nobody else understands what I'm going through. Nobody else gets me. Nobody else is going to be able to relate. And so this idea of Proverbs 19.20 is to not push back, but to receive, to welcome, to embrace that God-sent and Godward encouragement. To be like David, right, where God sends Jonathan to keep his head up and focused towards what God is doing in his life. We need some folks who are just going to be sent from God on our behalf to point us back to him. Not cheap encouragement, not like keep your head up, it's going to be okay, look on the bright side of life, if you remember that song, but to ground us back in the reality of God, right? In those moments of anxiety where we're just lying to ourselves and we're freaked out and we're like, I don't know what to do and we're having the panic attack or we're just living with kind of that low-grade uncertainty about life, we need somebody who loves Jesus and loves us to come alongside and say, hey, let's remember the faithfulness of God together. When we're in that season of sorrow and sadness and suffering, we need somebody who's going to come alongside of us and say, hey, let's root ourselves to Christ together. Let's weep together. Let's be in this together. I'm here for you. I'm going to sit with you, and I'm going to help, I'm going to help hold the line to tether you back to Christ. In those moments of loneliness and isolation, we need somebody to come alongside of us and say, hey, God is present. You cannot escape his presence. There's nowhere you can go where you can flee from his spirit. He is with you. Let's press into him together. And I can't, and I can't tell you how many folks, it's, it's one of the, the most heartbreaking things about being a pastor, is that folks will just kind of drop off for three, four, five, six months. They'll just go MIA. They won't show up to stuff. They won't return calls or texts. They'll just kind of be gone. And then eventually they'll show back up or they'll answer a text or a call and you'll just be like, hey, like, what's up? Like, where you've been? What's going on? And time and time again, there's this response of like, man, I was just walking through a really, really hard season and I just, I just had to pull back. And that's just the complete opposite of the invitation of Jesus. And it hurts because it's like, man, on the one hand, I get it. Like, on the one hand, I get it completely. On the other hand, man, God has a gift for you and the people of God in those difficult seasons. To press in, that you would love him more, and that you would see what healing he has for you through God-sent and God-word encouragement. That's where the healing comes from. Number four. Embrace God-sent and God-word rebuke. Embrace God-sent and God-word rebuke. This is Proverbs 27, if you want to flip over a few more. Proverbs 27, verse 6. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Or I love the NIV, but an enemy multiplies kisses. 
In our society today, we are all about uh, not being about fake friends, right? I'm not on the TikToks, but I think we like that, right? Like, no fake friends. That's what we're about. I love the proverb. is like, you want to know who fake friends are? Fake friends always agree with you. You want to know who a fake friend is? Fake friends, they multiply kisses. They never tell you you're off. They never tell you you're wrong. They always only support, always only say, thumbs up, you're doing a good job. That's a fake friend. You know what a faithful friend is, a true friend is? There's, they're ones that are willing to hurt you a little bit, to wound you. And it's the different, and I've used this analogy before, it's the different, but difference between an axe and a scalpel. So you think about an axe and a scalpel, both cut, right? Both inflict a wound of some sort. An axe is like, what are we going to chop off today? Like, let's just go ham, we're going to swing some axes. A scalpel is a tool in the hand of someone who is skilled, who is after our good. And they're still going to create a wound, and it's still going to hurt a little bit, and there's still going to be a cut, and there's still going to be some healing that has to happen. But when a doctor steps into the situation with a scalpel, they are wounding to help. They are wounding to heal. And they are wounding to bring redemption. So what happens is we have to be able to have humility to accept the differences and embrace that just because something hurt doesn't mean it was wrong. Just because that word from that friend, just because that push from that community group leader, just because of that rebuke from that best friend who loves Jesus and loves us, just because it hurt doesn't mean it was an ax. Often if they really love Jesus and love us, it was actually a scalpel. It's going to hurt. It hurts all the same. I'm not nullifying the hurt. I'm not nullifying the like, man, I really didn't like that you said that to me right now. Like, I'm not nullifying any of that. What I'm saying is, man, the wounds of a friend are faithful. But enemies multiply kisses. So let me just kind of pastor us for a second. Step on some toes. Stick with me, okay? I want you to understand this. Because this this idea gets twisted in, in our culture today. Acceptance and validation are not the core of Christian community. Let me just say that again, make sure we're on the same page. Acceptance and validation are not the core of Christian community. Yes, the church should be a place where you come as you are. Absolutely. Yes, the church should be a place where it's okay to not be okay. Yes, the church should be a place where we are works in progress, helping other works in progress. This church, Citizens Church, should always be a place where you can be broken and hurting and full of sin and full of doubt and full of questions and full of struggles and brokenness, where it's okay to not be okay. But acceptance and validation are not the core of Christian community. Jesus is the core of Christian community. And so what that means is, in that creating a space of welcome, and in that creating a space where it's okay to not be okay, our ultimate goal for someone that's sitting across from us at the table is not to validate all of their feelings or all of their happiness or only ever make them feel good. Our goal for them is Jesus. So sometimes we have to learn to love them more than their opinion of us to love them more than them validating us, to love them more than being okay that they're going to be a little bit upset because I got to pull out the scalpel here and I got to love you enough to point out Jesus in your life and to say, hey, I think you're living in unreality and here's what reality is and I want Jesus for you more than I want you to like me at this very moment. With kindness, with grace, absolutely, but with love. And this is how we move forward into emotional health, where we have people in our lives who we're willing to receive and not cancel and not cut off and not say no or whatever, but to be able to receive, okay, hey, listen, you're angry right now, and I think it's unjustified, and I actually think this is off, and I think this is a chance for you to submit it to the Lord and that your pride is hurt, and we're going to point back to Jesus together. We need people in our life who are going to come to us and say, hey, you're anxious right now, and I get it, and there's some really rough stuff in your life, but you're not believing the promises of God. And so we can we together go after Jesus? We need people that are going to step in and say, hey, when you were at that party last night, you put that person down to make others like you and laugh at you, and that was off. 
And you need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to go to them and apologize because wounds from a friend can be trusted. Those are true friends. Those are true people who love us and love Jesus. Number five. Number five, last one. Stick it out with each other. Stick it out with each other. Go back to Proverbs 18, verse 24. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, sometimes the danger of preaching sermons where it's like you need these types of friends is that it can create in myself a, a friendship pity party to where it's like, I wish I had those people. I wish I had people encouraging me and confronting me and loving me and serving me and being there for me and, and all these kinds of things. And, and I think Proverbs 18 speaks to that, right? There's a friend who sticks closer to a brother. This idea that these types of relationships, they just take work. They take sacrifice, and they take us giving of ourselves. And I think it's cheesy, and it's elementary school, but it's true. To have friends, you have to be a friend. Like, it's just true. It's cheesy, and sometimes cheesy things stick because they're true, right? To have these types of deep, committed to Jesus, committed to me, committed to our flourishing towards Christ, it's just going to take mutual, both agreeing that I'm committed to you, and I'm sacrificing for you, and I'm not going to give in when it gets hard. So for many of us, and this is myself included, I love the idea of deep-rooted Jesus-following, call-at-any-time, always-there-for-me community. In our church, in our city, folks that just know me and welcome me and accept me. And so this challenge for me, coming out of the book of Proverbs, coming out of the story of Scripture, is, man, am I willing to be the type of person who sacrifices to create those types of relationships? Like if I say, okay, I want deep community who loves me and gets me and welcomes me and accepts me and sees all of my brokenness, all of the cracks and crevices, all of my sin and loves me and points me to Jesus. If I want that type of community, am I willing to do the small things like not check out when I show up at group? Because that's how that gets fostered. That's how that gets developed. If I want that type of community where, man, I can call them at 10 o'clock at night when my life hits the fan and everything blows up and they're going to be there for me. If I want that type of community, am I willing to do the things like show up on Saturday to help them move or bring them a meal or call them when they're in need to create that type of self-sacrificing community? Y'all tracking? Alan Noble, he's a, a professor in the Midwest somewhere. He wrote this article uh, for the Gospel Coalition. It's called Friendships and Belonging in Middle Age. It's a really powerful article that I think we all should read. Uh, but he starts with this. This is his opening line. He says, I'm skeptical anyone over age 35 has close friends, which is just not how I want to start an article that I read. This is what he says after that. Deep friendships require great sacrifice. They demand you set aside your preferences, goals, and hopes at times for the good of someone else. If that sounds like too much work, you'll live a sad and lonely life. If you want to grow to be an emotionally healthy person, if you want to grow into emotional maturity with Jesus, if you want to flourish with God, it's just going to take sacrifice. Joseph Hellerman, who has that quote we read earlier, he, he continues that quote. Um, this is good. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. 
They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. I love that. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, they never put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. On a retreat this week, somebody was talking about uh, the difficulty of friendships and friendships in college versus friendships as adults. And I thought it was a really helpful analogy. They said that friendships in college are like microwaves. Like you just get, it just speeds up really fast. Like you're like, we're best friends. We're college roommates now. Well, yes. And in adulthood, it's much more like a slow cooker. Like it just takes time. Often it's better. Have you ever had a pot roast in the microwave versus a pot roast in the crock pot? <laughs> Hypothetically, it's just better, right? It just tastes better. It's like, this is good, right? But it takes time. Everything in life that is meaningful takes time, including our ability to live in deep Christian community that points us towards Jesus and helps us grow. I mean, I, I got... I'm, I'm lucky enough that I, I'm still very close to a few of those guys from that college group, one of which that slapped me in the face. And man, they know me in a way that is just crazy. Like it just the depths of my soul that they know me at. And this is true for those guys that have been married. You see this, the longer you're married, the more hopefully your spouse knows you and is able to point out Jesus and the gospel to you. Like, you're just like, why do you know that deep recess of my soul like that? And they're like, cause I've been around you for a long time. That's just what happens when we're pushing into these self-sacrificial relationships. But here's the thing, man, it is so easy for me to be like, yeah, I love those things. And to forget all of the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of sacrifice it took to build those relationships. Like it's, it's really easy for me to think about some of my really deep friendships and to forget about those times that I showed up for them at 4 a.m. or that they called me and said that hard thing or to think about that meal that they brought me at that one time or to think about that road trip that I forced myself to go on even if I didn't want to because that, just the mutual self-sacrifice, that is what breeds the lasting friendships that all of us in Christ Jesus want for our lives. Just the ability to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stick it out with you because I love you and I'm committed to what Christ is going to do in you. If you read that story of David and Jonathan, if you can't tell, I almost preached David and Jonathan. Uh, if you look at that story of, of David and Jonathan, what's so fascinating is chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, David kills Goliath. Nobody else goes to the battlefield but David. He's like, no, I trust in God. He's outmanned, outsized, but he, over all the other soldiers, goes and fights Goliath, and it's this beautiful story and foreshadowing of Jesus who kills the ultimate enemy, death. It's this beautiful story. But you have Jonathan watching what happens, and the language of the text points to where Jonathan just sees, man, God's hand is on this life. And so in a very real sense, yes, Jonathan commits himself to David, but more than anything else, he commits himself to God's purposes in the life of David. And that's what beautiful Christian church community does. Is this says, yeah, I like you. You're kind of cool. Let's hang out. I'll look over, look your annoyances. But more than anything else, I'm committed to God's purposes in your life. And his purposes for all of us is that we would grow more and more into the image of Christ. And here's the reality. I don't want any of this without the work of Jesus on my heart. Like, I want nothing to do with self-sacrificing love if God doesn't do something in my heart. I'm way too selfish on my own. Just am. That's not my preferred thing. <laughs> I love you guys, but I love you guys because God loved me. 
And so our only hope for any of this Christian community thing, our only hope for self-sacrificing relationships, our only hope for the ability to build deep relationships where we receive encouragement, give encouragement, receive confrontation, give confrontation, sacrifice for one another, or humble together, our only hope for any of that is the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. That he died to not only make us right with God, but to make us right with one another and to change our hearts because apart from Jesus, all of us are going after ourselves. But with the work of Jesus, that he changes us from the inside out, we can actually be freed up because of God's love for us to receive that love and then love those around us. So we need the gospel in all aspects of the Christian life. But even in this, we need the gospel. We need the deep work of Jesus, who is the true and better friend for us, who does all the things that we want other people to do for us and need other people to do for us, right? Confronts us when we're off, Shows us where we're wrong, encourages us when we're down, like a good shepherd comes alongside of us and carries us and picks us up and holds us close and says, hey, I'm going to bring godly discipline here when you're off, who, who cares for us and teaches us humility, all of these beautiful things Christ does for us and then calls us to do for others. So what we're going to do, we're going to celebrate that, remember that like we always do every Sunday through the act of taking communion. So you got a little cup of, of juice, you got a little thing of bread there somewhere on your seat. This is an act that the church all across the world for centuries has done as a way of remembering that work of Jesus his giving of himself on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection. So if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, even if you're not a part of our church, we invite you to take communion with us. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion, not because we want to withhold from you or make you feel ostracized or weird. That's not our heart at all. We love you. Uh, but you'd be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. And rather than take communion, we invite you to take Christ, to believe in him, to believe, man, my only hope for life forever with God and salvation and forgiveness of sins is faith in Christ. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to become a Christian. But for all who are in Christ, let's first take the bread, this little wafer, which represents the body of Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. And church, when we eat this little wafer, we are remembering the broken body of Christ given up on the cross on our behalf. So church, take and eat. In the same way, Christ took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. For every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're announcing, you're celebrating, you're remembering the Lord's death until he returns. I love this reality. I think it's so beautiful. One day, Jesus is going to return, and all of our problems with Christian community, all of our frustrations, all of our heartache, all of our pain is going to be done away with, and we're going to be perfectly united to Christ and perfectly united to all who are in Christ. And so as we take the cup, as we remember the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf, let's remember that he purchased not only our salvation, but he purchased us collectively as a church, that he makes us right with God and right with one another. So church, take and drink. Let's pray together. God, we are, are so grateful for the cross. God, and just thinking about a sermon on self-sacrificing love and thinking about a sermon on the Proverbs and all the calls they have for us to not be prideful, but to be humble, to to lay down our own preferences and wants and foolishness, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to receive the gift that you have for us in Christian community, God. And I just see my own life and all the ways that I'm prideful, all the ways that I'm arrogant, all the ways that in my heart I buffer against anybody speaking in, anybody wanting to, to call me out or to even encourage God and all the ways I want to isolate, Lord. And so I'm just desperate. I'm so desperate for your gospel. Like I don't, 
I don't know what hope we have to love each other with any amount of gusto if you don't do a deep work in our hearts. God, we don't want to sacrifice without first a deep change because of the sacrifice you have for us, you did for us. God, we don't want to love sacrificially if we're not first changed by your self-sacrificing love. God, we don't want to lay down our own lives until we are changed by the fact that you laid down your life for us, God. And so I just pray that you would change us by the power of your gospel. God, would you bring us face to face with how you, who deserved all the glory, you who deserved all the honor, you who deserved all the praise and the renown and the worship, you set the perfect example in Christ Jesus who laid down his life in humility and sacrifice. And yet, God, it was more than just an example. God, it paid the penalty. Was the sacrifice our sins and our inabilities and our brokenness needed to be washed clean, to be made new, and to be made right with you and each other? God, there is no unity apart from your spirit. There's no relationship with you or with each other apart from your spirit. So we need you, and we need your spirit. We love you. Change us, grow us, mold us more and more into the image of Christ. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.